Greetings everyone, Matthew here. We had some technical issues with this previous episode, and so if you hear a low-grade whine, or if you hear uh, like our voices sound a little bit different than usual, that's the reason why. Uh, I beg your patience. Uh, we're going to get this all sorted out by the next episode, and uh, I don't want to waste your time anymore, so uh, here's your episode. Polyhedron is a production of Headcanon Games, LLC. Please bookmark Headcanon Games for the latest in Polyhedron news. Polyhedron is sponsored by listeners like yourself. If you'd like to become a patron of Polyhedron, please go to patreon.com slash polyhedron. Now, on with your show. Hello, and welcome to Polyhedron, your multifaceted podcast for everything RPG-related. I am your host, Matthew, and as always, I have my two co-hosts here with me. Ryan. Hello. And Scott. Greetings. Okay, Scott will be played by a trash bot today, so I uh, hope everyone enjoys that. You know yeah. I'm a you know I'm a Robo Sapien. Yeah, I know you're a Robo Sapien. Robo Transhumanist. Robo American. You'd be a brain in a jar. <laughs> <sighs> Metal is better than meat. Well fellas, now that we've gotten this podcast underway, how is everyone? Pretty good. Um, just a couple hours saw Deadpool, which was amazing. I would uh, concur. Uh, and uh, yeah, had some uh, Valentine's Day smoochins. <laughs> yeah, I think today has mostly been Valentine's Day smooches. I think yep. it's, it's, today has been a predominantly smoochin' day. Yeah. Uh, Deadpool, the, the most Valentine oh, of, it, of movies. Oh, it's such a romantic movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a really gripping love story, you know, uh, with you know, strap-ons and all that good stuff. <laughs> well, let's get on with uh, the news, shall we? And before we devolve any farther. So, uh, news, news. What is going on in the news? 7C. Yes, you are correct. Uh, 7C, written by John Wick, has gotten a mighty resurgent. Uh, currently, it's over $500,000 out of 30000 that he needed to make that Kickstarter go. That's amazing. Yeah, half a million bucks for a pen and paper RPG. Um, that's pretty damn impressive. Mm-hmm. It's I guess it's gold leaf books for everybody, man. <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, the Kickstarter, which still has 28 days to go, it was funded in like like seven minutes, which funny enough, seven seats, seven minutes. But now that it's gotten so much, like even if you back just getting a normal physical copy, you get like tons of pdfs the the book itself will be huge because it's going to have all this extra content and then you're guaranteed all these extra supplemental materials that's just going to come either in the mail or it's going to be pdf to you it's amazing it's crazy. yeah i i think um i mean obviously it's made it's made more money i think than any other project has um it just shows that this is the future like this is the way things are going to go for a while mm-hmm. uh, until the next big revolution in t- publishing and product fulfillment comes along i genuinely did not know that that game was that popular like i i yeah. and i only heard about it when i moved to atlanta and one of our friends a uh, friend of the show jamie talked about running it and a few other people talked about running it i'm just like i i just have no idea what that game is and i i've never i have never sat down to play a session of it i've like read the main core book like one good time so to hear how popular this is is kind of mind-blowing to me so i knew it existed and i knew it was popular but it like appeared to get become like just like movies like bad movies become cult classics 
like seven C felt like that to me. Like hadn't really heard about it, knew it existed, knew it was kind of popular, and then it got really popular after it stopped getting being produced. And now that John Wick's got the rights and AEG's got the rights, as far as I understand how that goes, it's blown up. And obviously, people have come out in droves to support it. Well, I mean, it was a really popular game line. It's just you know not in our neck of the woods really. Um, it had lots of books. There are a really ridiculous amount of books. Uh, I believe. Uh, my wife has a complete collection, or at least had a complete collection at one point, um, and that takes up some real estate on our bookshelf. Um, so it's not as though it's like some you know obscure niche thing. It has a decent amount of following, and uh, in the intervening years, you know John Wick himself has uh, built up uh, a significant following in and of himself with mm-hmm. all of his projects. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, no, I, I I'm not I'm personally I'm not surprised because. I know it's a good game. I've played it before. I've had fun with it, and I know how rich and uh, you know sort of detailed the world is. Uh, the system was very interesting, uh, and yeah, no, I I think it's it's a good thing that it's come back and that it's gotten this amount of success is actually very heartening um, because RPG products in general actually do very well on Kickstarter mm-hmm. and on crowdfunding. It's one of the it's one of the most like shot in the arm, hooray, our hobby is is getting a second renaissance uh, thing, but to this degree, like, that is just amazing. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that, because Kickstarter is one of those situations where it allows producers to see how much, how popular, how much support they have before there's an ultra commitment of printing, because printing is super expensive, and once you print, that's it, you have a physical copy, and you gotta unload and try to make money off that physical copy. And, uh, yeah, and also, it's not just heartening for these big projects, it's incredibly heartening for the little guy, uh, for indie producers, um, because, I mean, indie, indie products do really well. Like, historically, if you have a decent package put together, if you, you know, have the, have the work done, and you set your goal at a reasonable level, you're gonna get your project thing because indie indie Kickstarter indie RPG Kickstarters do incredibly well. They definitely can. They can. I have seen a couple fail, and I know we're kind of going on the topic of Kickstarter rather than just Seven Cs here. But I have seen I've seen them fail, mm-hmm. and I put a lot personally put a lot of time in looking into the ones that have failed and why they failed. Some want too much money. Yeah. Some don't have all the right assets at to show their audience. And sometimes the appeal is not there. Maybe your project is super niche. But as Scott said, if you are reasonable, you put the time and effort into it, and you set your goal to be reasonable, you're going to get funded. You may not make a half a million dollars like John Wick. That's that's a lifetime of work right there to make 7C to what it is. But you'll get funded, and you will be able to produce a decent product. Mm-hmm. But yeah, congratulations to John Wick and his team. Uh, absolutely that is amazing. Yeah. Um, as as uh, I've seen many comparisons to 7C with one of my favorite book series, uh, The Lies of Locke Lamora. I'm sure I've brought that up before. Oh, yeah. I've, I've seen a lot of comparisons between the world of John Wick 7Cs and the world that that uh, series takes place in. And just knowing what I know about 7Cs, I'd agree with it. So, I mean, honestly... Uh, yeah, maybe 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 we should sit down and maybe play a little bit of it. Uh, I've I've backed it, uh, and I also got the sorte deck because I married the woman that I married. 
um, who uh, who loves fate witches and tarot and all that that woo. Um, but Which yeah, is... no, yeah, the uh, the comparison is not unfair. Uh, the Gentleman Bastard series and Seven Seas cook with a lot of the same gas, uh, and those books are delightful. Well, that's really cool. And, and again, as Scott said, I'll pair it again. Congratulations to John Wick and his crew. Um, we will we look forward to whatever you guys produce, and I know it'll be great. But let's not that's not exactly what we're here to talk about today, is it, there, Philip? Oh, also, no. if he's listening. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I've got plans. But anyways, well, the main topic for the discussion this evening, I think, is going to be, since we've already talked about, in the first episode, we talked about what role-playing is. In the second one, we talked about how do I make a character, or well, how do I embody a character. Um, I think it's time we start talking about the mechanics, the raw physical mechanics, because in a lot of tabletop RPGs, uh, you'll have dice in digital RPGs. You'll have some sort of stats or something, some sort of mechanical interface. And even in live action, you're going to deal with mechanics. You're going to have XP. You're going to have character points. You're going to have things that you can buy and choices to make. Well, and, if you're if you don't have a way to like have some form of conflict resolution that is outside of you know everyone just agreeing is how it is. I mean, at that point, you're uh, you're a histor- you're a historical reenactor or you're a theater company, not you're not playing a game at that point. Mm-hmm. There's there's a measure of like a lot a lot of people see like randomness as in dice rolling. Dice rolling is randomness in a tabletop RPG, and that randomness adds a measure of flair and chaos and dy- dynamism into the mechanics. Well, uh, something to note is you know from a historical perspective, all this stuff started with you know um, uh, D and D and uh, what was the game that preceded that chainmail 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 yeah all that started this chainmail and chainmail was like one step away from a board game um and, and it was very tactical it was very numbers and uh you know me- uh, mechanics and whatnot it was and and so that's that's where it all started and you know the hobby bears the stamp of its origins so as as Ryan mentioned that's what kind of makes it a game and less of a you know collaborative narrative experience or a collaborative storytelling experience um, and, you know, that's important. I mean, it's important to keep, you know, an, an eye on the game of it. Yeah, and, and every game is going to do their mechanics differently. There are no games, there are no RPGs that I know of other than on the ones in the same sort of setting and same game line that use the same mechanics. And even between different books, mechanics will change. They'll add new mechanics, they'll take away new mechanics. And all these things are there to represent a lot of different things. Wouldn't you agree, guys? Like, mechanics are there to be a, to fill in a lot of gaps and to allow it to be a game, allow it to have some sort of conflict resolution, and also add chaos and unknowability to what is going on. So if you're playing uh, an RPG with friends, you're going to have to deal with mechanics, and that's just a fact of existence. If you want to play RPGs. Sometimes, to the chagrin of everyone at the table, you will have to deal with mechanics. And you might have to deal with someone who's really, really good at them and wants to tell you about it a lot. (laughs) (laughs) In my personal experience, there's there's, there's one at every table. Yeah, and and that's okay. There are just some people who love mechanics and they're going to learn all they can about mechanics. Just like you have people who love the setting are going to learn every little detail about the setting. You have people who are like, I love mechanics, I love how they break down, I love how they work, I like the statistics of them, and they're going to use those mechanics to 
whatever end that they want to. Um, I mean that that's a that's a you know some people go so far as to uh, be to be what we call a min maxer, uh, which are the you know like basically their character sheet is a math equation. Uh, and and little little more than that. They want to be able to do a handful of things incredibly well, and do not get a flaming fuck about your about charisma or diplomacy or anything. Or that... a concept. Oh yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, as a min maxer, screw you. <laughs> uh, but I try my best, even when I am the most min maxiest, crunchiest, munchiest character. If you're a min-maxer who still plays an interesting character when the time comes to do the talking thing, you can get away with anything. And honestly, as I won't be so harsh as to say I'm a min-maxer, that's a lie, I like to consider myself efficient. As in, I'm going to use the mechanics as I see fit to optimize out to the point that I enjoy, but I will also have a character has a very well-rounded backstory and personality, and then I'm going to roleplay him as such. Uh, well, it, it really it, this is coming down to like how do you how do you like to tabletop, and what what yes. tabletop game are you playing? If everyone at the table if if everyone at the table is more about the story, then it would behoove a person to create a character that is more about the story and. Like yeah, your mechanics are fine and all, but at the end of the day, you still need to have a character. Mm-hmm. Now, if ever, if you're if you're playing a, a war game, and there's plenty of these, you don't need a character. You just need your optimal army, your optimal character. There's plenty of games out there that just are straight, you know, number crunch, math, tactical fighting, and that and that has its place as well. But I think we discussed that pretty. Oh yeah, yeah. If, the, if, the if anyone episode. wants to go, I want to refresh or go back to episode two. And that should fill you in on what exactly is going on. Um, but we're talking about mechanics. And so we have mechanics that say a lot about the system. And in general, for tabletops, let me go over some basics real quick. Um, mechanics uh, are dice rolling. And based on how you roll, like the number on the die, plus maybe any modifiers from your character sheet, will determine success or failure. Now, this will vary depending on from game to game. Each game will be different. Yes? There's two families, really, of resolution mechanics that you see in many games. There is the static singular bonus of your Dungeons & Dragons, in which you roll a single die. The die is the, the static number is added to that die, and successor failures determined that way. The other classic, uh, which is your White Wolf, mm-hmm. and a bunch of other games, is your dice pool mechanic in which your statistics generate a pool of dice on which success is a certain number, and the number of successes generated upon that dice roll determines success or failure based on a difficulty of number of successes required for a thing. If you're paying attention to what Ryan just said, one of these systems is simpler than the other, and there's that's on purpose. That's the Dungeons & Dragons has always, I wouldn't say prided itself, but it's tried to be approachable and understandable and simple so that anyone can kind of pick up a game and go. Uh, Whereas White Wolf wanted to be more complicated as a sign of maturity, but that's uh, that's other type of discussion that we can have. Yeah, accessibility is discussed more in our D&D, uh, D&D episode. Yes, we'll yes, which will come out later, I promise. With the lovely Murphy. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think... My my biggest concern, um, and I, I'm this may be a bigger concern for me than than my two fellows here, 
Uh, my biggest concern when it comes to dice mechanics and sort of core mechanics of a, of a system uh, has less to do about, you know, simplicity, complexity, um, that thing, but how well the mechanic serves the theme uh, of the setting and the story that's going on at the table. Um, the more a mechanic feels like it's a part of the world, a part of the, the, the setting, a part of the way things work, um, both in like sort of the, the physics of the world uh, as well as you know the, the, the type of story that you're trying to tell or that the t table is trying to tell, uh, the, the more engaged I am in the system and in the game. Uh, because, well, I, I, I go to games, be it you know, tabletop games, LARP games, uh, computer games, board games. Uh, you know, if there's a story there and the story is compelling, that's what's going to grab me. That's, when get, that's what's going to get me engaged nine times out of ten. Um, the, rest is, the rest is important, but it's much less important than that core element to me. And if the dice rolling, which is, you know, sort of the, the, the most, you know, mundane, day-to-day, -day, you know, clap-trappy part of, of the gaming experience, if that serves the story, if that, if that serves the character, um, then I am much more, I'll be much more likely to be uh, uh, engaged and in the game, um, just because that's what I go for. And he's right. I mean, everyone's going to have a different perspective on rules and how they play. Another perspective on rules and mechanics and what they do for a game is, in my opinion, I, I agree with the sentiment that Scott has, but in my opinion, they're very much the physics of the game, of the setting you're in. Uh, on Earth, we have gravity. Up, up is up, and things that go up will generally come down, that kind of stuff. And in my opinion, mechanics really do inform you about what the setting is trying to say. Um, like D&D. &D. Uh, we can look at that real quick. It's got one die. It has one singular mod generally one singular modifier and that's what it does. It's got spells, which so that tells me fantasy setting right there. It's got some other mechanics to deal with combat but and there are a lot of mechanics to deal with combat. Therefore, there will be combat in your game of D&D. That's what sort of drives some of the action. You shouldn't look to Dungeons and Dragons for high political intrigue at all times without expecting at some point a bugbear to, <laughs> to eat your butt. Yeah. <laughs> um, something, uh, something that I thought of. Uh, there's a fellow by the name of John Chung uh, who has some things to say about this. He's a he's a member of the Exalted fan community. I don't know if he's ever really written anything I don't uh, think so. other than fan material. Um, but he has a very interesting thoughts on Exalted and how things work and how the mechanics of Exalted, to him, inform the setting of, of Exalted. Um, one of the sort of the core principles of Exalted, at least in second edition uh, and first edition to a lesser extent, um, is uh, the idea called paranoia combat. Um, exalts, in general, uh, will have the capacity, through a combination of powers and, and abilities, just to whack some motherfucker. Uh, like just straight out, one straight hit. up, straight up, one hit kill people, no joke. And that me to 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 John Chung's perspective, that means that this is a world in which everyone's paranoid. Everyone has to arrange their own personal magical development such that they can use what's known in the system and the setting as a perfect defense. A I don't care what you just rolled. I don't care how much damage you hit at me. I spend these amount amount of moats and I protect myself. Um, Sort of on the flip side of that, he, he used a very interesting sort of metaphor 
Um, he's like when he was talking about his idea of like you know the system describes and informs the setting. Uh, he 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 made the point that in a in a hypothetical Sailor Moon role playing game, um, <laughs> it would be physically impossible to attack someone while they're doing their transformation scene. Yeah. Uh, because it never happens. Yeah. It, um, it, it's the mechanics have to reinforce the idea if you're playing the Sailor Moon RPG that they're transforming. You can't do anything about it. All right, it. I'm just... gonna I'm gonna pose that at any point where we have to talk about uh, a, a an RPG that doesn't exist. Well, actually, no, the Sailor Moon RPG 100% exists somewhere. I'm sure of it. Yes, it does. Please comment it at me. I I'm I'm just so very curious. <laughs> but we'll just use that as our as our running yeah. example of like how how like mechanics uh, affect the world. Like in the Sailor Moon RPG, we know for a fact that there are no one hit kills. Like yeah, absolutely. Essentially, no. Like you have to build up enough of a nar- enough narrative failure points to one hit ice a dude because that's just how it rolls in that show. Yeah, it's in in what we're all saying here is that the 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 in some respects the the mechanics are just as important to the story that is being told because they are part of how the story is told. Um, what you go about. Some mechanics are very dry and simple, like D and D. You can tell many, 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 many different types of stories with D&D mechanics with very little tweaking. Whereas some games like, I don't know, Amber, or Houses of the Blooded, that that changes the narrative flow. That changes how you interact with the world. Now, I know, Scott, you love you some Amber, which, to let everyone know, besides setting doesn't matter as much as it's a diceless system. And that scares the living crap out of me. So, so everyone's aware, I don't like diceless mechanics, but Scott has zero problems with it. Oh no, not at all. Uh, yeah, Amber Diceless Role Playing is—it's based on a series of books uh, called The Chronicles of Amber, um, and it's about you know reality walking demigods who have have comparative compared to you know random Joe Schmo on the street, they might as well be like Zeus or Poseidon or something. Yeah, they're very they're very Nordic. They're Thor. It's basically yeah. walking around. Uh, you're talking to an Asgard. Yeah, you're talking to an Asgard. Yeah, that's that's accurate. But and the system it represents that level of power by basically putting people in tiers of existence, uh, and you know you you can categorically say that if your strength uh, is higher than someone else's, you can wipe the floor with them. Uh, just you know, it, it's just the way it works, uh, and it leads to some very interesting role playing because um, the the really the only stat that matters in this game is your personal like BS rating, your ability to maneuver the narrative and uh, and your fellow players and and storyteller to get into a situation where your abilities are the ones that matter. This brings us to an important point about granularity hmm. in in game mechanics because we have there are games that are simulationist, which uh, you'll hear us throw that word around simulationist, meaning that. They attempt to use mechanics to put the game world in a very, very strict framework of everything can be rolled. Like everything or represented. Or represented through the mechanics of the game system. Um, whereas things like Amber Diceless zoom out so far, it's like, no, we're talking about a power scope here that is so beyond mortal can, it doesn't actually matter what it actually means. We don't need to represent my everything. Number, my number is higher than your number, therefore I beat you up. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, taken to extreme, like, Shadowrun. If you look at the rules for Shadowrun, um, oh. there are rules for walking down the street. 
Um, like it, it's it's not perhaps that granular, but like movement, you can get really nitty gritty in that. To Shadowrun's benefit, those are rules that you can just throw right the hell out the window and not use. Uh, they're not integral to the game to the to game in any way, but they are there. Yeah. As as Ryan was saying, granularity, and Scott saying like the broad scope stuff. Not everything has to be representative. And Amber, there's the idea that just like it's it's narrative, it's narrative. The idea of like narrative fiat, the idea that you it doesn't matter. We'll just make it. It, it works. Just the, the the GM, the storyteller, just goes. It works. It's fine. Moving right along, and that is fine. That makes a game very quick, and that's also something you'll notice. A game that generally is more granular, granular, the idea of a game being more nitty gritty will generally be slower in when the mechanics come up than something that's more fiat oriented. Uh, I mean, this is this is a pretty classical example of uh, the time complexity requirements of a single Dungeons and Dragons combat is an exponential growth depending on the level. Now, it's not so much... I, I would say that in the newer edition, 5th edition, that's not so much the case. But I tell you, as a person who played a huge amount of 3.5 edition all the way into the epic level system in which you broke breach level 20 and the mechanics go out of, out of, thing, out of scope, um, a, what would count in game world time as about, by their rules, 30 seconds? Like a mountain's exploded, a god's dead, and half your party is lose has lost their limbs. And you've been at the table for about six and a half and hours. And you've been at the table six hours, and everyone's unhappy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, on the flip side of that, uh, Salon Larp uh, can run into this problem, and that's even more frustrating um, because Salon Larp combat can be ridiculous, especially given certain systems that are not quick and dirty. Um, you know, the idea of, you know, well, we've been having political instru instrument, the 10 o'clock monster shows up. Well, everybody can pull out your character sheets and let's stand around for two hours while we, you know, do rock, paper, scissors or pull cards or whatnot. Um, I've been in games like that where it's like, well, it's been 20 minutes and I haven't done anything and I'm standing around in silly costume. Yeah. Uh, let me interject real quick, Scott, uh, just so people understand. We were talking about tabletop RPGs, and now he's talked, said a new word called salon, which is live-action role-playing, which typically, in short summation, is you are your character, you're probably dressing like your character, and you're walking around talking and acting like your character in a real-world sort of setting. Um, and that has an entirely different set of conflict resolution, typically. In Salon, especially Vampire and Werewolf, they had the old chop system, which was basically paper, rock, scissors, plus a whole other mechanics that got lumped on top. They didn't really use dice. They used a whole different form of it, and they used a lot of verbal mechanics and other, other and, and hand symbols in order to demonstrate what the mechanics were doing so everyone could respond in kind. And then there's the system that's actually good, uh, where, <laughs> where you pull cards and your number matters. Unlike Rock, Paper, Scissors, which is probably one of the worst resolution mechanics uh, that I have ever seen. Please come at me on Twitter about this. I really want... I want your treatise on why chops are good. Please, okay, I beg well, you. Okay, well, for... They, there's a measure which they have an advantage, and that is everyone's got... Generally, everyone's got hands, and they can use them. I mean, pulling cards, pulling dice out, even in live action, can break the suspension of disbelief it can really mess around hand hands is quick easy dirty 
but may not exactly be the best thing. Okay, bro, but a dude just like a vampire playing rock, paper, scissors with a guy... <laughs> And a guy with a guy who's like dressed in you know cargo shorts and a and a like a metal t-shirt. Sorry, doesn't really do it for me on the immersion front. I'd rather just pull cards. Oh, and and to not say like as a system, as a like as a as a thing that you can cheat at, rock paper scissors is real cheatable. Um, you can you can game that real hard. There, I know some people from you know my my uh, vampire live action days. Um, who are like rock paper scissors psychics? Like they they can read. They've invested significant amount of time in developing the skill of reading you, and mm-hmm. and throwing their chop like a split second later based on what they've read your minute motions as you go to put your hand down on your other hand. That is a that is a real problem. That's why a lot of those systems. What they did is they went to cards. But the cards had the paper rock sy- symbols. On them, and they generally weren't just three cards; it was six or nine cards, so that when you shuffled, there was no way the other person could tell what that card's going to be. Also, phone apps these days yeah. uh, do the do it for you, so there's no none of this. Uh, so that kind of since we're going into like the the families of mechanics by which conflict resolution is taken care of, so we've talked about dice pool versus static die for tabletop we've talked about card pull versus chop for salon this brings us to the third and in my opinion the best form of role playing uh buffer larping which it it can really i'm not gonna argue it it is it is the best drug well you know you put you put on a silly costume for a weekend and you you have to sleep in fear and that really does it for you the way that uh because obviously we can't have a randomizer. Like, there, randomization is completely out in, in Boffer LARPing. It's an abstraction, right? Yeah, and the way we mostly handle uh, uh, stuff like this in Boffer LARP is taglines. Verbalized taglines, which express in a way the thing that's coming at you, what it does to you. It, we hit each other with weapons as the greatest abstraction for, like, this is how I harm you. If you want to harm someone, you actually have to strike them with a thing, be it a packet or a weapon. And the tagline you call along with that strike, whether it be a packet-delivered effect or a buffer weapon, tells the person what they need to defend against and what they can use to defend against that thing. That also There's also social mechanics where you can, uh, I mean, ostensibly mind control a person to, tell, like, to get like, personal information out of them or ways to deal with them if you just you know, call it at them. And, you know, those are the sort of interesting mechanics that it's fun to, you can niggle with, but we'll talk about that in house ruling and stuff like that later. Mm-hmm. It, what, what Ryan's getting at is, like, Waffle LARPing is, if, uh, just like Salon, it's another step, maybe consider the next step from Salon in live action, because what it's doing is saying, let's not abstract the rules in dice and randomization, let's actually make it to where you physically have to go do a thing. You have to go pick that lock, or you have to hit that dude with a weapon, and that is actually what you're doing. Where in turn you have to actually further abstract. How does one abstract picking a lock when one has to be crawling around on their backs under a bunch of bunk beds while something is swiping at their feet and trying to pour water on their head? Like, how does one do that? Uh, and to uh, take it to another level, which is not something that, that I believe... Mon- any of us in this room have much of experience with it. There are people who take this thing to um, 
uh, Nordic LARPers. Uh, they, they do the boffer thing uh, and take it kind of a step beyond and, and remove a lot of rules and just make it, take it into the land of pure abstraction and pure, pure narrativism. And, and the, at this point, the worm kind of eats its own head. Mm-hmm. And I don't think any of us can really talk about that with any degree of like, nope. of, of like knowledge or whatnot, but it's out there. And it's weird. We have friends who, uh, from who have their own companies and who are doing their own uh, gaming thing, who might be able to speak more intelligently about this. And I would actually love to bring uh, uh, one or two of them on to see who have read up on how Nordic LARPing actually functions. It would be interesting conversation to have if we could get somebody who has, at the very at the very least, experienced Nordic LARPing to give us an insight because. I, Scott said, I have no practical Even if they were to just phone in from the other continent and be like, yes, I did this thing, and here's how weird it goes. Well, I mean, calling it weird isn't exactly fair. It's just another level of immersion that... It's very different. It's a, it's a different animal, and I'm not exactly sure how, it, how we would even view... We would see it and look at it and know what it is, but that would be the only way we could really relate to it. Anything beyond that, we're like, nope, don't have any idea. It's a different dialect. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's actually a good way to put it. And and while we're talking about like weird like uh, alien styles of role playing, uh, I don't have a lot of lot, this is another thing I don't really have a lot of knowledge on it. But our friend Nigel uh, will probably I would love to bring him on to uh, to talk about this specific subject. Uh, Japanese role playing games, like old uh, Japanese role playing games are a different beast entirely. Uh, because... I've never heard of that. I've oh, literally... yeah, no, no, no. The, the Japanese, like a lot of things, took the RPG and did their own thing with it. And a Japanese RPG, at least you know, back in the old days... Are you talking digital now? No, no, I'm not talking about digital. Mm. I am talking about pen and paper analog. Uh, a Japanese RPG is generally based... It's a module. Um, like I said, I don't know a lot about it, but it... Japanese RPGs, or a certain style of Japanese pen and paper RPGs, play a lot like Japanese com- uh, console role-playing games, in that you, the story and the characters are all pre-generated. Like, the story points, it's more like reading a script, and when combat happens, you roll some dice, but in general, the story and your actions are all predetermined, and you're just sort of Play the actor, actor filling yeah, the shoes. You're the actor filling the shoes, and the game is just like it's a combination of like reading a script and playing like the grognardiest game of chainmail. Um, and you that see, you guys, you should see Matt's face right now. It looks almost it is a mixture of confusion and pain. Exactly. I just but, but if you think, I but I'm getting it. I understand it. It's like it's like it's 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 like a actor on a stage. They have a part to play. There's a reason some actors are really good at playing certain parts. It's it's that you go there to watch them, to see them, and to go, you appreciate how they interpret that character. Yeah, but if you think about Japanese console RPGs, like that's how that is. Like think about Final Fantasy VI. You know, just like every computer role-playing game, you aren't determining what your character says and does. You're you're just sort of playing through the thing. But that's where that came from. The pen and paper thing in Japan came up before the, the, the computer games, and that was their experience, and that's why JRPGs are the way they are. Oh, interesting. That, I would, we'll need to talk about more of that later, because I, I would love to know more about that. Uh, I actually have a 
thought on it. Um, it makes it kind of actually makes sense uh, why it came out this way. I mean, this is just early tabletop RPGs for um, for us for Americans uh, were you sometimes were playing a pre-generated character. Like pre-generated characters are not a new thing. Like they've been around since the very beginning of this, and a lot of times it would just be like you say, Matt. How does one interpret this particular character? Now, it, it's not a huge leap to say that, you know, when delivered the the Dungeons & Dragons 1st Edition box set to Japan, they're like, well, this is how this works. And then they, unlike us, who are like, you know, maybe I want to be my own guy. Maybe I don't want to, you know, do it this way or be this character. Maybe I want to be my own dude. They they took it in the complete opposite direction and were like, no, you have to a, be this dude. You you are this dude, and you are going to be this dude as hard as you can. Oh yeah, like I said, our friend Nigel knows a lot about this. He actually spent some time in Japan, uh, and he's just a general. Yeah, he, he knows a lot about Japan. He's kind of a Japanophile, although he'll probably kick my ass for saying that uh, in you that way. Use, you didn't use the mean word for it. That's he's true. Just him liking Japan is different than being a weeaboo. That's true. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, no, very interesting, very. Unlike everything we're used to over here, uh, but fascinating. It is fascinating because I kind of understand what Ryan is going with. Because back in like first edition D and D, you had the cl- you had the class elf. Yeah. You, your class was elf, and then as time has progressed, for that, they have moved away from that, and now you can be any race and be any class. There are no like it's almost like um, WoW from MMOs is like back in the day when vanilla WoW was around. The Horde had certain classes and races. The Alliance had certain classes and races. Guess what's happening now? And in Legion, which is the newest expansion for WoW, anyone can be anything. The delineation and the difference between the two is melting away. As a former person who played World of Warcraft for about 80 hours a week, I find that offensive. I, that's what they're doing. Yeah. I know. I'm actually. I'm kidding. I yeah. don't actually give a crap. But it's. <laughs> but I. But that is very odd to hear. Like, I just. It's kind of I don't I don't I don't pay attention to World of Warcraft anymore because it's healthier if I don't. <laughs> and that's fair. It's, some people shouldn't do certain things and uh, they, don't go they're to not the, to indulge. Don't go to the classic cookie if you have diabetes. You'll <laughs> just get sad. Yeah. Uh, we kind of went off on a tangent and we were talking about resolution and resolution mechanics and not just tabletop LARP but salon and boffer and then we went off on tangents and Nordic LARPing and Japanese RPGs. Um, something I think we should sort of bring it back down a little bit to talk about is a couple concepts like house rules. Um, even though you may pull an RPG off the shelf, likely your GM or storyteller is going to tweak the rules a little bit. They're going to adjust things in order to fit the, what they want to do in their game. Uh, yeah, I mean, White Wolf explicitly said, uh, I remember reading this in every single core book that they've ever put out a little sidebar called the golden rule uh, that being if you don't like a rule change it uh, if it doesn't fit for your table do something else do something that that, that fits your style your player style um, and they were very explicit about that um, so yeah house rules are a big thing I mean it's how you customize your game to your table and that's super important because not everyone's gonna have fun the same way as a, as a good example of that in my in my current role playing experience, I, I may have mentioned Legend of the Wu Lin here and there. It's a very very fun kung fu wuja 
tabletop role-playing game. That being said, the mechanics are not always the friendliest uh, for actually enjoying yourself, and it it and it over like it overcomplicates certain aspects of stuff that should just be easy and maybe might it may detract from the fun here and there. We have done an extensive house ruling to where we actually have a multi-page document Hmm. on Google Drive of our house ruling to sort of ease the game back into being something that's a little bit more accessible for, say, someone who's never played a tabletop role-playing game before but might think this is really cool. That that actually goes back to a little bit of what we are discussing, is just mechanics, and that's actually a judgment that you can place, a criticism you can place on any RPG is uh, both digital and physical, is how well the mechanics work with the ergonomics of the uh, of the mechanics, how well they work with the human mind and the human perspective and the rationale that people go through. Now, for house ruling, Ryan is absolutely correct. That is a way of sort of smoothing the rougher edges of a game to better fit what you're doing and how you like to play a game. What it comes down to is that there has to be a point where you say, do we actually need to roll some dice about this? And a lot of the time, the answer is just no. And whereas the system would be is, is there to do so, sometimes you have to abstract out even further and just say, no, you guys probably handle this. You are an arbitrated some different way. It also comes down to a time constraint. Not all of us have seven hours to sit there and determine how many throwing daggers it takes to kill that orc. Yeah, no and... one really wants to do that. So, so in order to keep the story actually going and to remember why you're even fighting in the first place, you may have to take what would be a six-hour combat and be like, okay, we're throwing out the rules to make this annoying, and it's going to be an hour and a half. Yeah, and then it gets into a lot bigger conversation of, well, if you're just going to throw out the rules, why are you playing the game you're playing? Why don't you make your own system? Which that's a whole other discussion onto itself, and it's the idea. Also a straw man. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's just, it's how house ruling is important though, and no one should be afraid of house ruling if you're deciding to run on your own game or you're part of a game. And it's actually good if you're a player, since we're talking about some very basics here. Is talk to your GM and your storyteller about do you have any house rules? What should I expect when I go into a game? Because part of a game that you're like, hey, I want to play some vampires. Like, okay, Scott, you're gonna you're gonna run some vampire. I would, as a responsible player, be like, are do you have any house rules? What are you expecting out of this game from me? So I know that oh, we're gonna go off and uh, so the bad example from previous podcasts is we're gonna go. This is gonna be a primarily killing a whole bunch of cops uh, game. It's like okay, I know what kind of character I need to make if we're gonna go do that. But if it's not, if it's a, it's a whole bunch of political intrigue, that's a whole different character I need to look at, and you may have specific house rules that I need to consider when I'm making my character in order to have fun for me and for you. Uh, another example from the days of yore. Uh, piece of knowledge, guys. Did you know that White Wolf once made a Street Fighter tabletop game? What? Yeah, I, for I, sure. I do it, know this, but uh, I, I believe you have some things to say about it. I do. I played it, <laughs> I played it for Four years. Woo! What, what were you even doing? What, what, is just... what do you do? Yeah. I mean, it's... you. Okay, well, Street Fighter is on planet Earth, and you exist in the world, and there's a lot of drama that goes on in the background of this with, like, Shadaloo and, like, the World Warriors and Interpol all fighting each other all over the world. 
doing crazy nonsense all over the place, and you are just some some of the ranked fighters that are part of that. That, but that was a game that was so broken balance wise <laughs> and so badly constructed that again, this was a thing where we had to write multiple multiple pages of house ruling to make the system a little bit more functional and to add functionalities that are were necessary. For example, like super moves and stuff like that. Well, we had super moves that wasn't part of the base system, but we, you know, we came up with it and and it worked out pretty well. That being said, it's sometimes though mechanics are there for a reason, and one thing you always have to worry about with house ruling is are we circumventing something that is there for a very good reason? Because I think we've all sat down to a table where like. Well, we had a GM where it was like, oh, I didn't like this rule, so I threw it out. It's like, well, you just completely threw the game system out of balance because not all game systems are an unbalanced nightmare. Some of them are actually pretty, pretty locked into how tight. The, the rules are very tight, and if you adjust anything in any way, you start upsetting the balance of how they were put together to begin with. Which, I mean, depending on how how much the uh, system takes into account what I was talking about earlier about how the system informs the setting and inf and enriches the setting. Uh, you could start to deal with some tonal issues, uh, like you know just an off the wall account. Uh, vampires, yeah, they don't need to spend blood to use their disciplines. No, um, that that means that you have just a bunch of you know gothy superheroes running around and they don't have to rely on you know the feeding on human life at, to sustain themselves. At which point there's a probably if you want to play a game where you're a gothy superhero who doesn't have to spend stuff on your powers, mutants and masterminds is a yeah. better tabletop yeah, for you. When you just said that, I literally, folks, everyone listening, I had an aneurysm. <laughs> I, I got over it really quickly. Yeah, his uh, eye is still twitching. It's gross. Yeah. yeah uh, because that 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 he's absolutely right. Because games can get out of hand like that if you're not very careful. So house ruling with caution is definitely something we would recommend. Because there are games that have lots of lots of lots of lots of rules um, that that deal with one another, and changing any one of them can have unforeseen and unknowable uh, consequences. That being said, if, uh, another thing that I get that I bring up in our D and D podcast coming soon is that additional books published under the same auspice of a game system, uh, splat books, expansions, stuff like that, will sometimes introduce mechanics that are completely crap on a, in of themselves and do the job of throwing game balance off completely of, and by the design of the people who are publishing it, which it is always within the GM's best interest to, if someone comes to them, with mechanics from outside of the source material that they are used to using, i.e. the three core books of Dungeons & Dragons, some GMs are a little tighter about what they'll let you bring in than others. They may not even allow certain things from the Dungeon Master's Guide as character expansions, because there's a lot of nonsense that can occur from even letting in just a little bit extra stuff from a splat book or an expansion book. So Ryan, that D and D game you're running, I can uh, play a psionic, right? You may not. Oh. Also go to hell. <laughs> yeah. Also, I'm going to kill your cat. Oh no, oh. not my kitty. No, 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 no. With my mind. Oh, sh oh, oh man. Okay, if you well, do you... that, I guess it's warranted. Yeah, because but... I'm the only person who's allowed to play psionics because I'm the GM and I'm the best. Well, my kitty has a psychic shield, so you better spend some power points there, buddy. Ego whip. Oh shit. Oh uh, damn it. 
Well, and that's what we're kind of we're we're looking at, guys, is is that mechanics are purposeful, as we said. They are the physics. Uh, they are how the game functions. And if you notice that little banter back and forth between and Scott and killing a cat, please don't kill a cat. That's a bad idea. I wouldn't kill a cat. I would yeah, not kill a cat. Please, 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 anonymous, please. Yeah, <laughs> I'm so sorry. Please. Uh, is, My life. He has the idea of something that even the player needs to expect that where some games have sort of a narrative collaboration that are back and forth between the GM and the player. Mechanics are a little more ironclad, a little bit more set in stone. They're like, I have this thing that I can do. The rules say I can do it. I should be able to do it. And that's kind of the expectation that is from the player to the GM. It's like, GM, hey, dude, my mechanics say I can do this. And, and if you just say, ah, oh, it doesn't work like that, and you didn't tell me beforehand, that can cause a lot of tension. We, we, I believe we've already talked about that kind of tension that can happen at a table, and it's very important. This is why communication, again, is key to a, any, any sort of role-playing game. I mean, yeah, that's, that's kind of the part and parcel of the, the social contract that you all sign when you sit down to roll dice, uh, is you know the, the expectation that, yeah, my powers are going to work the way they should work, uh, and if they don't, there better be a damn good reason why they don't. And, you know, that's that comes from trusting your GM, a GM trusting your player, um, and, you know, sort of knowing the, the mood of the table, when to when to fudge, when to uh, when to be a stickler, and when to throw certain things out of the window. It's, it's a delicate art on both sides of the table. And I would definitely say, it, I would, art, you're absolutely correct. It is, is, it is, takes a lot of practice and experience from a player and a GM perspective, which hopefully the next episode will actually be us talking about running a game. And more so than the player, the GM needs to understand the rules and understand what the rules mean for the game. Uh, following that, you should understand what your GM... We talked about the mechanics being the framework by which the universe functions. That being said, it's not always so cut and dried. Whereas some people may view uh, a, a 20 dexterity in Dungeons and Dragons as the ability to quote unquote go Legolas on that motherfucker, <laughs> uh, some some GMs don't necessarily see it that way. Uh, they see a 20 dexterity as yeah, you're Usain Bolt fast, like you're 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 inhumanly fast, you're inhumanly quick, but you're and you're the pinnacle of humanity but you don't break the laws of physics with how you move. Right, and that's sort of like the narrative weight that a GM or player places on their mechanics, and that's, again, where communication between the two is very important to understand what level are we all talking about. What it's level like, of real? Yeah, it's like, okay, so I'm going to play a Mutants and Masterminds game, which is predominantly a superhero game. Me and Ryan are going to play, are we playing Batman, like street-level Batman, or are we taking playing like Kryptonian Superman as Guardian Thor type of stuff. Oddly what, enough, you can do both on a single D20. You, <laughs> you can, because Mutant's Mastermind is only one of the tightest, most mechanically well-versatilized systems that I have personally ever seen. Uh, which is why I am very, 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 very excited uh, to see uh, the Story Path system, which is, we've mentioned before, uh, the system behind Scion and uh, the Trinity Universe 2nd Editions. Uh, one of the things that is built into that, based off some of the previews that they've released, is the idea of scale, of mechanically reinforcing and, and describing scale from, you know, pulp hero on one end to titan god creature on the other, um, and having it all work, having it all sort of intermesh and be able to be at the same, be at table. The same table, 
and and not just completely uh, throw things out the window and and make it unplayable. Um, so I'm very interested to see how they do that because oh man, that's some good stuff. I I, I totally agree. And and why that's important? What Scott is saying, sort of like especially if you have a game that talk, has many tiers of power level and that they all have a good way of communicating with each other mechanically because nobody wants to be deprotagonized. No one wants to feel like, well, I'm really cool for a mortal, but I've got Superman right over here. Well, this sucks. Why isn't Superman fixing all my problems? Why, why am I even here? Yeah, having a... And it's, yeah, it's scalability is, a, is actually where a system stands up or falls down as to whether it can run or not. Like, whether you can, as a PC, start out as the lowliest low creature and through just the regular progression of the system become a world-shattering power within the confines of the system and it all still makes sense. Mm -hmm. I have, in fact, played a game where I went from, and I'm not shitting you, a little mouse knight, i.e. mouse guard style, to now I am somehow a nine-headed hydra mouse creature who walks the stars and has, like... Oh, you're just adorable, though. Oh, well, of course, he's, he's as cute as can be, because I still talk with a little high voice. But um, but that was all through the natural progression of the system, where and, and I still can... It still all makes sense. Like, the numbers still all work out to where the scale makes sense, hmm. which is a hard thing to do. Yes, it's very hard, and it can be very troublesome. And so, I, and unfortunately, it is getting to that time, boys and girls. So we're going to have to wrap it up here for this discussion this week. I Hopefully this was very informative to everyone who's listening. I know I had a blast talking about this because I'm a giant mechanics nerd and I love it and I want to talk more about it. We'll probably have more specific conversations about mechanics at some later date. I know it. But um, anyways, for anyone uh, still listening, uh, you if you have any comments, concerns, things you want to shoot at us, talk to us about, we are at polyhedronpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we are also on Twitter. Um, my Twitter handle is at bioimportance. Scott, where can people find you? At Divis Malkav. Great. And Ryan? At uh, Arduous. R-J-U-O-U-S. Um, and also, um, if anyone's listening, please, please, if you really like this episode, give us a five-star review. It really helps us on iTunes. We'll absolutely uh, give you a shout-out uh, let you know uh, that we appreciate your support. On the other hand, if you decide to be a complete and utter asshat on it, I will, as usual, read your review in a funny voice. Also, probably with the misspellings you likely put in the comment. <laughs> I, I really want someone to do that. Please, someone. Do, I mean, whatever. It, it, it'll it'll, it'll look crazy. Even for funsies, yeah, because I, I want that to happen. <laughs> and last but not least, if you really, really like this podcast and you're really enjoying it please tell a friend tell them to download and listen but also we have a patreon and this patreon is important to us not only will it help support the show get us the better equipment so sort of the quality is better and we can do more stuff with the show but it also helps out head canon game until next time go go have some fun go roll some dice